Welcome to Animalia, a podcast all about making it easy and inclusive to learn about this big, beautiful planet, the life we share it with, and how to protect it. Earlier this summer, we debuted our first multi-part series called The American War on Wolves. We chronicled the deliberate efforts to exterminate wolves in this country dating back from the mid-19th century through the present day while also detailing the various efforts to recover and protect them against all odds. As we head into the 2021 hunting season, and so many of these states that have returned to a strategy of killing wolves in the name of misinformation and cultural hatred following their federal delisting, we thought we should give you an update on where things are at, given the incredible response we've seen for the four-part series we debuted. And if you haven't listened to that yet, please do. You'll be thankful you did. Just scroll back five or six episodes that started in July. We've also received some questions about why we've given this story so much attention. Animalia is all about sharing work and stories about saving this planet and all the incredible life on it. But it's really important we emphasize why this issue in particular is so important in our efforts to do so. So let me walk through those real quick. For one, We've identified three critical focal points for saving this planet. The first is lowering our emissions and decarbonizing the way we live. A lot of our content and episodes touch on this. Absolutely a must. The second is protecting biodiversity. A lot of our content touches on this. And the third is shifting our cultural values away from the exploitation of the natural world and frankly of many humans on this planet and towards one of community and standing up for those that are most marginalized. Wolves are so critical to maintaining their natural ecosystems for biodiversity, for these natural carbon sinks. Check out episode one of our American War on Wolves series to learn more about this in detail. As for the cultural shift, could there be anything more poignant than the cultural war on wolves? On one end, we have the anti-wolf community who only view the needs of the natural world through their own lens, not through science, because there is no science and there is no data that supports slaughtering wolves. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Wolves mitigate disease and prey species, like elk or deer. They give life to dozens of other species through the trophic cascade of their apex predator standing. And they can even strengthen our rivers, as we've seen in Yellowstone. On the other end, we have the pro-wolf community that is standing for biodiversity, for indigenous rights and culture, and for governing our relationship with the natural world through science, not personal gain. Yes, wolves do kill livestock. I always want to emphasize this. They do kill livestock. However, in most of these cases, it could be prevented with non-lethal measures. And in almost all of these cases, they're not materially impacting the livestock industry. This is why you never hear the anti-wolf contingent referencing the percentage of livestock killed by wolves, only anecdotal cases. As for protecting hunting rights, there are many hunters out there who understand wolves are their allies in keeping prey species healthy and flourishing and pose no threat to their way of living. Still, as we are seeing across so many matters in this country right now, the cultural wars are tearing us apart. In the case of wolves, we have far too many Americans with far too much time on their hands, with far too much influence, raised on a cultural hatred of these magnificent animals and determined to kill them at any and all costs. In this way, 
we firmly believe that the battle to protect wolves represents the battle to protect the natural world and this planet overall. Sure, that statement will get battered and persecuted by the anti-wolf community, but we didn't create Animalia to make friends and appease everyone we can. We are here to share the science and information needed to protect this planet. So which cultural mindset will win out here in America? Are we going to protect this beloved symbol of our terrestrial lands, or are we going to exterminate them again? Are we going to prioritize this planet, or are we going to keep pushing off meaningful action and keep kicking the bucket down the future generations? This is why this story matters. This is what it represents. And this is why we're going to continue to follow it and share updates. And this is why we hope you get out there and talk about it too. In case you missed the series from the summer, here's a really quick cliff note version of wolves in this country. We've been eradicating wolves dating back to the settling of the West in the mid-19th century. They were killed in the name of progress, wiped out much like the Native American tribes that revered them. Wolves were all but gone from the lower 48 states by the time they finally received some protection in the form of the 1973 Endangered Species Act. Only problem was that the agency that was meant to deliver that protection, the Department of Fish and Wildlife Service, has been completely ineffective due to their deep ties with U.S. agriculture and just, frankly, mismanagement. It took 20 years following that act to actually kick recovery efforts into full gear when wolves were reintroduced to the Yellowstone National Park in 1995. In the two decades that followed, those wolves migrated to other Western states, some doing a better job protecting them than others, while the actual enforcement of federal protection has been kind of stuck in first gear. The gray wolf in the northern Rocky states has seen more recovery success in the last 25 years than the Mexican gray wolf in the southwest U.S. or the red wolf in the east and southeast. Then came January of 2021. Just two days before the insurrection on our capital, Donald Trump officially removed wolves from the federal protection list. Why did he do that? Well, because he's a douche lord. And with that states were able to draft their own policies and rules for wolf protection. States like Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, and Wisconsin raced right back into exterminating wolves, while states like Oregon, Washington, Colorado, and California doubled down on protection. Although even in those states, in the rural counties where wolves reside, some are disregarding their state's position. It's been a really, really tough year for wolves in this country and a really brutal year for all of those people out there fighting for their protection. They are back on the brink of collapse. We will not save this species long-term with only a few states holding up their end of the bargain. Wolves are migratory animals who can move a great deal, especially when mating and forming a pack. They know nothing about state boundaries. Most states define wolf hunting season as November 1 to February 28. Well, unless you're Wyoming and you celebrate killing wolves all year round. So where are we at going into this hunting season? That's the focus of this episode and this update. Well, let's start with a little bit of good news. I mean, Lord knows we could use it here. So update number one, federal protection. In late September, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, following the receipt and review of two petitions urging federal protection and federal relisting, deem those two petitions to be credible and scientifically sound to formally move into review of that delisting. One of those two petitions came from our partners in the American War and Wolf series, the Center for Biological Diversity. And as a reminder, 
every time you listen to that series, we donate a dollar to their efforts. The first petition asks for a distinct population segment known as a DPS be recognized for Northern Rocky Mountain gray wolves covering Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, and the Eastern third of Oregon and Washington. This would allow the federal government to provide unique protection for this specific subpopulation of gray wolves. And the second one asks for protection for wolves across all Western states. Now, while this is good news in the sense that they found the petitions credible and they're opening up a review, it's, it's also a reminder of how absurdly frustrating and slow it is to get things done. Trump was able to repeal and delist wolves in just under three months. Yet to relist them, this is the first step of a very lengthy process, one that took four months itself to get done. Honestly, trying to navigate what can get done with executive orders versus congressional legislature versus 50% vote versus majority support, I mean, we really need like a maximum 20-page document that outlines how we govern and how U.S. government works. You want a lengthy appendix that nobody will ever look at? By all means. But damn, this stuff is such a matrix. Now the next step is underway, where anyone in the public can submit commercial or scientific data on either side of this issue for the review. And I'm now anticipating the muffin stumps at Hunter Nation to formally submit the harrowing tale of one little red riding hood as part of their evidence to keep wolves delisted. Furthermore, as it turns out, the Endangered Species Act of 1973 did not spell out a process for emergency listing. I guess they figured by 2020, we'd be so advanced in technology and civilization that diligent science would be guiding any and all environmental decision-making, seeing no need for emergency processes. Well, how'd that turn out? Now, let's, let's hope this keeps moving down in the right direction and this federal relisting happens. Because as we're, as we're going to learn in just a minute, we cannot depend on state-by-state jurisdiction. And that brings us to our second update, the Badger State. Now, Wisconsin already won the superlative for most appalling response to the federal delisting, where back in February, they slaughtered a recorded 218 wolves in nearly 60 hours, or 80% over their 118 quota. Just this week, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, or the DNR, set this winter's quota at 74. But let's unpack that a little bit. Wisconsin already had a state law recognizing wolf hunting between November and February whenever they're not federally protected. Yes, they basically had a kill law already passed and waiting. It's like if your partner divorces you and the second they're divorced, they move right into a new marriage they agree to terms on while you two are still married. Despite that, the DNR in January initially said an immediate hunt before the 2020 season ended, again, would be February. So that January to February period would be too rushed and not well calculated in terms of the right numbers, how to set the right quota. And so let's resume mutilating wolves in November of 2021. Thank you, DNR. Sort of. Because those same muffin stumps from Hunter Nation, and yes, if you want to know what I'm referring to, just look up Hunter Nation and the people behind it and, and you know, Make some decisions for yourself. Well, they sued the DNR on behalf of all hunters and trappers, saying there was still time left to hunt, and they needed licenses immediately. So the DNR obliged. 
issued over 20,000 licenses to kill 118 wolves. And somehow they were surprised that more than 200 ended up dead in 60 hours. 20,000 licenses. Oh, and on those licenses, they also allow you to bring up to five people with you. So they essentially mobilized upwards of 100,000 people to go and kill what was supposed to be just over 100 wolves. Shocker, it didn't work out well. We still don't know the true population impact. For one, the University of Wisconsin came out with a peer review report that the count is at least 100 short, and they documented 318 deaths, or roughly one-third of the entire wolf population in the state. For another, these hunts were done right before breeding season, and we know several pregnant females were killed not to mention countless breeding pairs and alphas that yearlings from 2019 rely on for survival. The impact is devastating and goes well beyond the state-documented 218 kills. So here we are with a new quota for 2021 set at 74 for hunters and trappers and 56 for Ojibwe people. But you see, the quota that is constitutionally required to be shared with Native people is not used by them to actually kill, but rather protect. So those 56 wolves that are granted to the Ojibwe people to hunt are not going to be hunted by them because the Ojibwe people recognize that wolves are worth far more alive to us than dead. But just like in February, when the hunters and trappers blew past their 118 quota under the guise of, well, they had to take out the 82 carved out for Ojibwe people because, well, they weren't doing their job of killing those wolves. I expect to see the same group of warlords reaching for the 130 number. So how do they get to that number? It's shaky at best. The DNR claims that any population can survive a 29% loss from all man-made interventions each year. Although nobody in the scientific community really knows where that number came from. What if I told you that you can survive six punches in the face every day? Would that be sound logic for me then to proceed to actually punching you in the face six times a day? They then claim that they factored in the February total even though the actual scientific researchers and field biologists have made it clear that nobody knows the true impact on the population size yet. Ah, but the DNR and the Natural Resource Board that guides it, they know the answer. Right. The whole notion of quotas is problematic. They're almost always relatively arbitrary. How would you like your right to live to be governed by an arbitrary number chosen by the winning bingo slot at the local senior home? Instead of managing the quotas, we should be managing to protecting the interests of both the environment and ranchers and farmers. And I want to be clear here. We should protect the interests of ranchers and farmers. But we can do that without killing wolves. If a wolf is repeatedly attacking livestock in a specific area, it should be prioritized and first addressed with non-lethal measures. And only use lethal measures if absolutely necessary. And that livestock owner should be compensated for their loss. If there are problems, let's deal with them in rational ways. Quotas are not about protecting ranchers or solving problems. They're about giving the bloodthirsty anti-wolf community whose vote you are counting on a bone to chew on. It's about culture and politics. So is this quota of 130 good or bad? Well, it's less than the total from February, which was 118 for hunters and 82 for native communities. Look, any wolf death is bad right now, 
the species is incredibly threatened and only occupying 8% of their natural range. So let's start there. Any wolf death right now is not necessary, is not helpful, and is not needed. As it turns out, the Natural Resource Board that informs the policy of the DNR wants it set at 300. But wait, don't those two work together? Well, this gets messy, so let's keep it brief. I don't think anyone wants to get too deep into the underbelly of Wisconsin governance. The Natural Resource Board is led by this lumpy McLump nugget named Fred Prenn, who technically is four months past his term, but he refuses to give up his seat until all the Senate appointments are complete that voted for his replacement. And by all accounts, he's only doing this to see it through that wolves get slaughtered again this winter. This is a grown-ass man who is acting like a petulant child demanding his dead wolves. It's awful. Now, under a Democratic governor since 2019, state of Wisconsin and the DNR set the quota at 130 instead. But both groups are fighting about who gets the final say. Is it the Natural Resource Board or is it the Department of Natural Resources? Confused yet? Yeah, so is everybody in Wisconsin. And sure enough, here come those muffin stumps. Hunter Nation is filing a lawsuit yet again, demanding the Natural Resource Board decision of 300 is recognized and established. They also reduced the licenses of Wisconsin going into this hunt season from a 20 to 1 ratio of hunter to wolf to a 5 to 1. Now, this may seem like a good thing, right? Fewer hunters means smaller chance for overkill. And not so fast. Fewer hunters can also mean a longer hunting season. And if there are still wolves to be legally killed by the time deer season ends, that's when hunters can bring out the hounds. Hounds not only provide more torturous and efficient kills by chasing wolves to the point of exhaustion for the hunter to then easily kill it, well, they also sometimes fall victim to a desperate wolf fighting for survival. And then that turns into a media firestorm of wolves killing our dogs. Complete spin and misinformation taken out of context that is used to maintain support for their determination to extinguish the gray wolf. Wisconsin is a mess, and the victims are the wolves, the indigenous people that care so deeply about them, and the ecosystem health we rely on. There is hope that the state is going to get much more diligent about the quota and ensure they don't see a repeat of February, but color me skeptical. The track record here isn't very good. So that brings us to the third update. Colorado, and with it, Wyoming. Now, talk about two neighbors on very opposite ends of the wolf spectrum. Colorado in November of 2020 passed a proposition to recover and protect wolves and have seen the first legitimate pack living in the state in 2021 in nearly a century. Meanwhile, Wyoming allows for license-free wolf killing year-round in 85% of the state, where wolves are seen as predatory animals that can be killed as consequence-free as killing a rat or a bug. By literally any means, in Wyoming, you can run over a wolf with a snowmobile or drop explosives into a den to wipe out some pups. These two neighbors are like a proud boy charter leader living next to the fundraising organizer for AOC. This leads to a clear example of why we cannot just leave wolf protection to state-by-state -state jurisdiction. At least three of the four wolves in Colorado's Pioneer Pack have been killed. There's belief and hope that the fourth wolf is still alive, but conservationists are still trying to get a visual confirmation. Why did they die? Well, because they briefly crossed into Wyoming. 
And again, in Wyoming, outside of a few semi-protected zones in the northwest of the state around Teton and Yellowstone parks, wolves are seen as predatory animals that can be killed without license year-round. A pack that briefly wanders into Wyoming doesn't stand a chance. Wolves move a lot. Yes, packs themselves tend to have set territories, but those territories are expansive. And packs also split, and new packs form all the time. When a young wolf leaves a pack to start his own, he can roam hundreds and even thousands of miles looking for a mate. They know nothing of state borders. You can't put up a sign that informs the wolf, hey, if you cross this invisible barrier, you're probably going to die. One of the hallmarks of conservative principles is less government. To allow states to govern themselves without federal involvement around the principle that the states know what their people want and need better than the federal government does. And, and yes, in theory, that may be true, that state legislators are closer to their constituents than the federal ones. However, wolves should not be seen or governed as state animals. They represent ecosystems that cross state lines. As an example, I was proud, as many others, to see Liz Cheney stand up against Donald Trump as a Republican and vote for his impeachment. But she's been clear as a senator from Wyoming that she opposes any and all form of federal protection for wolves and is firm that Wyoming should get to govern wolves to their own accord. So if a protected pack from Colorado ends up in Wyoming, however briefly, well, shame on those wolves. It's also worth mentioning here the Green River. The Green River is one of the last few connective tissues between the northern and southern Rockies. It serves as a natural wildlife corridor, and, and we need these corridors to maintain biodiversity because so much of wildlife is indeed migratory. Many apex predators need large amounts of territory to avoid conflict. And since we no longer have vast, sprawling, unsettled space in the West like we did two to 300 years ago, we need to protect these corridors if we want to maintain U.S. wildlife. Again, only federal protection can do so because they cross state lines. The loss of Colorado's Pioneer Pack is tragic and heartbreaking. Less than a year into Colorado passing the law to recover the species, it hurts the positive momentum a bit, but there's still hope that Colorado can revive their wolf population. Some are turning to the southern part of the state now to support Mexican gray wolves and hope that they might migrate from Arizona in the future if the Mexican gray recovery program then expands. Well, that brings us to our fourth update, the capture of Anibis. One of the many challenges facing the Mexican gray recovery, and boy, there's a lot of challenges here, which we cover in depth in episode three of our series earlier this summer, is how restrictive their protected zone really is. There are many downsides of this. For one, if wolves are penned into too dense of an area, well, they run into a lot of conflict with each other. It can also lead to issues such as lack of genetic diversity if yearlings can only mate with related pack members. And it can lead to higher chances of surrounding livestock conflict due to competition over more limited wild prey. Well, Anibis was having none of that. In pursuit of a mate to start a new pack, he recently roamed north of the I-40 towards Grand Canyon National Park, some 200 miles from the protected zone. However, once spotted, the Fish and Wildlife Service captured and returned him in August. This frustrated biologists who recognize the need for wolves to be able to, you know, be a wolf. And that means leaving your territory when you start a new pack. Anibis was feeding on elk, had zero conflict with wildlife, and zero conflict with people just minding his business, doing his thing. Even more, local Arizona residents say they wanted to see wolves in northern Arizona. They were excited to see Anibis. They want to allow them to expand and restore healthy biodiversity to their forests. 
This is common in a lot of states. The majority of people in Wisconsin want to protect wolves. The majority of people in a lot of these states that are not protecting wolves actually want wolf protection. It's the small minority, and the but the immense power of the ranching community and that traditional anti-wolf culture that is governing. But the Fish and Wildlife Service did not oblige allowing Anubis to do his thing. And on one hand, one can understand why. They're worried, and rightfully so, that Anubis would be killed if not in his protected zone. They're probably right. He probably would be. There are hundreds of thousands of people in this country who want to see wolves exterminated. And yes, they're a true minority in terms of overall population, but not in terms of influence. The issue here is not about whether the Fish and Wildlife Service did the right thing in returning Anubis. The issue is, why don't we expand the protection zone to the entirety of the state? The state parks and wildlife will benefit. Arizona tourism revenue could benefit, as we've seen in Yellowstone. Could there be livestock conflict? Yeah, but you know there always will be. However, measures can be taken to mitigate it, and those losses can and always should be compensated in full. Again, I always want to stress when we cover this story, we should and absolutely must protect the interests of ranchers, but we can do that without killing wolves. Finally, let's finish with updates on two more of the problematic states right now, Idaho and Montana. So which do you want first, the bad news or the bad news? Look, I know this episode and this update seems all doom and gloom right now. And so much of our focus here on Animalia is on positive developments and breakthroughs and fighting for this planet. However, this is happening in our own backyard here in the US. And how we handle this will be a hallmark and signal of our relationship with the natural world for decades to come. It's not great news right now, but these developments need to be out there in the open so more people are talking about it and urging their state representatives to stop exterminating wolves. This is not the 1800s anymore. We can't keep going forward with policies and mindsets that are clearly outdated and destructive to the environment, to protecting the few natural ecosystems we still have left. So we're going to keep these updates coming. Let's do Idaho first. The recent news here is that in addition to the bill they passed this spring declaring death to 90% of the state's wolves, well, they now passed a law essentially bringing back a bounty program. Talk about the 1800s. Just this last week, Idaho officials formed an initial pool of $200,000 that will be provided as reimbursements for those killing wolves. As much as $2,500 per wolf for kills made in areas where wolves are chronically preying on livestock. So what does that mean exactly? It's pretty suspect. To qualify, the area has to have at least one confirmed or probable depredation for five years in a row. A probable death. Are you kidding me? Who is defining the probability? What's to stop an anti-wolf rancher from finding a dead cow down by a stream, let's say due to toxins running through our water systems, and just saying, well, probably one of those damn wolves. Let's report that. The loopholes in these policies are borderline insulting to even basic human intelligence. Even more problematic, the law expands killing methods to now include dogs. And we've seen and discussed how problematic this is in Wisconsin. Idaho continues to go in the wrong direction against science, against data, against environmental needs. And finally, Montana. Probably saddest one of them all. Sorry. <laughs> We're just one week into the hunting season. One week in, three wolves from a Yellowstone pack have been killed. Montana declared earlier this year 
plans to ultimately kill up to 85% of the state's wolves, starting with a quota of nearly 40% in the hunting season that just began last week. Horrible goals founded from the same diabolical cultural principles and misinformation we've been touching on throughout this coverage. Hunters wasted no time as they are quite literally camping out on the outskirts of Yellowstone, just waiting for a curious wolf or two to cross the park lines. It's estimated that wolf packs in northern Yellowstone spend roughly 5% of their time outside the park, particularly in the fall. Under federal protection as an endangered species, that 5% of the time they roamed outside the parks didn't really pose much risk to wolves. And by all records and documents, has never posed risk to livestock. However, without that protection, Montana hunters have been unleashed. And again, these are not wolves who came out of the park and killed livestock. These are not wolves who fully left the park to take up new territory in livestock area. These are wolves who know nothing about invisible boundaries and are just out looking for wild prey who would have returned to their den back in the park come evening. How do we know they would have returned? Well, probably because the wolves killed here were two pups and one yearling not yet old enough to migrate and form their own pack, not yet on the pursuit of a mate. At this age, especially the pups, they rely on the pack for survival. The yearling was likely practicing guardianship, preparing to one day soon leave the pack, but that's not really what was happening here. Now they're dead. The Junction Butte pack they belong to are the most observed pack in Yellowstone from a tourist standpoint due to the accessible view of where they den. This pack alone may have brought in up to $10 million in tourist revenue for Montana in the last year. So why are we legalized killing them so haphazardly? There is no data or scientific evidence to support what is happening right now across Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Wisconsin. Only anecdotal stories of livestock depredation, misinformation on threats to natural prey, complete out-of-context spin on deaths to dogs in the case of Wisconsin, and most of all, cultural warfare. Protection efforts in Colorado have already been hampered by neighboring state policies with the loss of the Pioneer Pack. Rural ranching communities in eastern Washington and Oregon are gaining momentum to expand lethal intervention and pushing back on non-lethal measures. And the Fish and Wildlife Service continues to completely mismanage the recovery program in Arizona and New Mexico. There is hope that the federal government can step in. We need Deb Holland. We need Joe Biden to take action, to prioritize relisting wolves to federal protection. If they go through the traditional bureaucratic process, especially given other urgent matters from COVID to the border to getting the hell out of fossil fuels, that protection may not come fast enough. Wolf packs across these states may make it through this hunting season, but they probably won't make it through another one. We're on the brink of once again exterminating the species. We know the science behind how vital they are. If we want wild prey, such as elk, to hunt for ourselves, we need healthy wolves. If we want our forests and parks to maintain their beauty and biodiversity, we need healthy wolves. If we want to stand up and protect indigenous cultures, we need healthy wolves. If we want to turn the page as a nation and embark on a new journey of living in harmony and balance with the natural world, we need healthy wolves. Listed in the podcast notes are online petitions you can sign and groups you can donate to. Please, please, please continue to talk about this issue and spread the word. As always, thank you for listening and supporting Animalia, and thank you for your voice and efforts in protecting this big, beautiful planet and all the incredible life that calls it home.